Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour today is Utah author John Starley Allen. His book out is A Splash of Kindness, The Ripple Effect of Compassion, Courage, and Character. He says, the little things you do make a big difference. And his book is filled with true stories of positive change and showing how small acts of goodness have a ripple effect and eventually change the world, included are stories of remaining orphans, of uh, the great athlete Jesse Owens, the inventor of television, Philo Farnsworth, many other uh, stories. Uh, John Starley Allen is author of Christmas Gifts, Christmas Voices, you may be familiar with. Besides writing inspirational books and stories, he's also a gold record award-winning songwriter. He's performed his music at Nashville's Bluebird Cafe, Country Music Hall of Fame. He's lived in Sweden, Nashville, Moab, currently resides in Holiday with his wife, Joanne. They're parents of four daughters. John Allen, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks a lot for having me on your program, Tom. It's great to be here. So uh, this book, as I understand it, reading the preface here, is uh, began with an unexpected effect of, uh, I guess, a pebble you threw into the uh, into the pond. Ripple effect had an effect on someone else. Uh, could you tell me about that? Sure. In, in fact, um, I, I'll even take just a little step further. Is the first book I wrote, Christmas Gifts, Christmas Voices. It was inspired by an event that took place in Moab. It was a tragic event. You, you might remember it. It was of four uh, teenagers were, on Sunday, they were driving to church, and their car slid into the Colorado River. And you know, it had happened right before Christmas, and they all, they all perished in the accident. And the whole town was just devastated. And I couldn't understand, how could this happen right before Christmas, how could it happen at all, you know? And that's what inspired me to write that book. But as I wrote, it was, but that was the true event that sparked the, the fictional account. And then I added a part of other, as I thought of people that had done acts of kindness, I added that to the end of the book. And then I actually mentioned, like, this is like a ripple effect. And ever since then, I've just been kind of tossed that idea around in my head. And, uh, as you mentioned, I was a songwriter, and so we, we were living in Nashville, and as I interacted with one individual, um, apparently I must have done something that I didn't remember. And so we moved back to Utah, Then I went back for just a two-week visit, I was walking down the street, and uh, this person hailed me and said, do you remember me? I said, oh, sure, yeah, I remember you, and we started talking, and then he told me something that just astounded me. He said, you know you actually changed my life. And I go, really? <laughs> I had no recollection of it. And it was just, to me, just sort of a trivial, something very trivial, I said, and just a very trivial action. But then he, and I, when, I, when I said, I don't quite understand it, he said, well, you did this just at the right time, and it, just, it really changed my life. It, and I thought, well, it's just a small act of kindness. He said, yeah, but when you did it, it helped me out, and it really made my life on a whole different pathway. And when I learned that, you know, it's, I just think there's something just really profound of all these stories that I've researched that something, just one little act, but then it just has these profound consequences that you would never expect. Mm. And, and then I thought, I've got to write a book about this. And I started researching different stories, and some, some I were familiar with already, then others I, I just uh, researched. And that's how the book came about. 
I wonder, if, do you have your book with you? I do. What if you could read this uh, passage on uh, page two, just middle of the page, talking about radio signals, and then just read to the over the top of the next page. You bet. Electronics experts assert that the radio signal waves go on forever. While the waves become weaker, they never totally vanish. Traveling at the speed of light, they extend far into the outer reaches of space. So it's not inconceivable to imagine that with the right kind of ultra-sensitive receiving equipment, radio programs originally broadcast some 60 years ago and are possibly being listened to right now in galaxies light years away from Earth. Now this conjures up the whimsical image of individuals who may or may not look like us in some distant corner of the universe right now listening to a young Bing Crosby crooning or laughing at the antics of Deborah Biggie and Molly, Jack Benny and Bob Hope, or thrilling to the adventures of the Shadow, the Lone Ranger, and Jack Armstrong, the All-American Boy. Like radio waves, our actions, major deeds, as well as minor acts, can have far-reaching effects. Where you are living right now might be the result of your great-grandfather McCloskey's decision to immigrate to America. Who you are could be the result of something as simple as your grandfather's friend, Charlie, loaning him $5. With that $5, your grandfather got a shave, a haircut, and a new shirt, and had enough money left over to go to the big weekend dance held at the Terrace Ballroom. It was there that your, it was there he met your grandmother, from whom, for better or worse, you inherited your red hair. And none of this would have happened had Charlie not lent your grandfather five dollars. Hmm. Yeah, I like that example. Just a, a simple act, and I'm sure you know the, the friend who lent the five dollars probably yeah. would never know that the, the that would have a ripple effect. You, you know, um, I'd like to share something with you that, as I've gone over these stories, there's a couple. There's one incident that I think is really profound. Is um, there's there was a woman whose family, they were in the sharecropping culture in Alabama, and she could just sense that they were not getting ahead. And in the, po- in the book, I make the point, sharecropping was kind of like an extension of slavery. It's just like, okay, uh, with, with, the, uh, with Abraham Lincoln, it's like, yeah, slavery was, you know, in theory done away with, but it was kind of continued with sharecropping. You just couldn't get ahead. And you know, he barely had enough food to eat. And this this mother just said, you know, we have to move to Cleveland. And she came up this side, we're going to Cleveland. And the father was just like, you know, how are we going to make it up there? We don't know. All we know is sharecropping. How are we going to make it? She said, you know, we have to go. And she was just adamant about it. And so they moved to Cleveland. And what's interesting, Tom, is like there wasn't this immediate result, like, wow, this, this was a great move. Everything's great. It, it really wasn't. And it's like the father really couldn't find any kind of work that would really help out financially. But here's, here's the thing. is because they were in Cleveland, they had this young boy. His name was James Cleveland Owens. And at the school he attended, he met a coach named Pop Riley. And because he met Pop Riley, Pop Riley saw something. It was interesting. He saw this skinny young kid. He said, you know, 
I don't know why. It's maybe the way he moves or something, but there, he might possess some attribute that I can use on the track team. I just sense there's something about this kid. And what I think is interesting is he didn't just say, okay, join the track, track team. But he said, you know, he approached him and said, let's think about it for a year. And he brought him food every day, like some breakfast, maybe a, an orange or an apple. And in one year's time, he'd gained some weight. And he said, okay, now, now you're ready for the track team. And uh, that, that kid was Jesse Owens. Yeah, because amazing. That mother who said, let's go to Cleveland, you know, years later, the headlines are Jesse Owens uh, to sort of defy some Hitler. Mm-hmm. Yeah, put a put a wrench in the uh, in the narrative that Hitler wanted at the uh, thirty six Olympics. Yeah. Right now, Pop Riley, he's an interesting character. He he had some unorthodox methods. You know, you know might uh, some people might consider him pretty unusual, but he the, some of that unusual ca- characteristics really helped out this young man, Jesse Owens. He, when he first started coaching Jesse, he said, uh, "Come with me this Sunday." And I'm going to show you some of the best runners on earth. And Jesse's like, okay. And he, uh, Jesse Owens got a couple of spares. Where's this track meet we're going to? He couldn't find anything. So he got, and Papa had this old dilapidated Model T. He shows up. He said, okay, let's go. He said, where are we going? He said, oh, you're going to find out soon enough. And they go in the outskirts. And finally, they come to the horse, horse racing track. He said, well, what are we doing here? He said, you know, I'm just, just watch. And he showed how the horses were just very um, focused on running. Some had blinders, some didn't, but they just kept their heads straight ahead. And he had criticized Jesse earlier. He said, you know, you're, you're looking to your side, you're looking behind you to see where you are in the pack. And just that little bit of energy that you're using for that could cost you the race. He says, you just focus on yourself, focus straight ahead, and look what these horses do. And so Jesse's like, oh, uh, run like a horse. Yeah, right. But then he got what he was saying. He said, you know, there is something to it. Just you focus straight ahead and don't use any other energy for anything else. And don't worry about the other runners. Just do the best you can. And he had this uh, slogan, where's victory over self? It's like that, you, you compete with yourself. And Jesse did that his whole career. You have a scene in the book, and this is, we don't have information, so you imagine it, uh, where Jesse Owens is returning, and uh, and Pop Riley meets him at the dock. And, you know, on that scene, I just thought, because I because I'd sort of was familiar with both of them, I thought, you know, I think it was probably very poignant. We, we know that he was met at the New York dock, and I make the point where Pop Riley's like, you know, another thing he said is like, run like you're running on hot coals. And, that, and people would hear that, so that's a, kind of a strange thing to say. But with Jesse, he's like, okay, these are hot coals. I'm going to, you know, run as fast as I can and, and not touch the ground that much. And some of these things, uh, they, they were, like, as you point out, they were unorthodox. And as he's waiting for Jesse to return, I just imagine him like, you know, because of Jesse, uh, now all of all of my theories and practices have validity, and he was very thankful to Jesse. But then you can imagine how Jesse felt. He, and I just imagine him seeing Pop Riley, and his heart just melting. It's like because of you, you know, I've got this great, had this great uh, career because mm-hmm. you took me under your wing. And the the thought I had, 
is sometimes I think we don't complete the circle and we don't tell the people who've had an effect in our lives that they have had an effect in our lives. And boy, I've, I've just noticed, I have done that in my, in my own life where uh, people will have an impact on me and I just want, and I, and I, I don't realize that unless I tell them, they're probably not going to know. And um, in the book, I talk about uh, this man in our neighborhood. His name was Bryce Van Wagner. And he was just an all-around great guy. And I remember once he was taking us to a church meeting, and, and there's three of us in the back of his car. And he's picking up a, a, another a fourth, fourth boy. He comes back to the car, and the way... He would get in the car. He would just his knees would go slack, and he'd just like, you know, just uh, slide into the car very quickly. What happened is he snagged his ear on the corner of the door, and it started to bleed. And I looked at the boy next to me. I thought, you know, we're going to hear some choice language here. We're probably going to hear a lot of profanity, and why not? You know, he just got unexpectedly hurt. But all he does is he goes, "Doggone it, that hurts!" And you can tell it's like. You know, this is a guy that has made up his mind. He's not going to swear, especially in front of a bunch of kids. And that made a real profound effect on me. It's like, you know, if he's not going to use bad language for this, he's made a commitment. And, you know, I would probably do well to follow his example. And, you know, I haven't been perfect at it, but I've always thought of him. And I ran into him in the store like 20 years later. and I, I told him that. I said, do you remember that? No. I said, well, that, that really had an effect on me. What did he say? He just shook his head. I was like, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he said, I didn't know. I said, well, you mm-hmm. really, uh, you, you know, you had a very profound effect on my life. Yeah. That were, I want to get to some of these other stories of Philo Farnsworth, uh, the inventor of television, um, uh, Romanian orphans, an, an interesting story with a lot of different aspects uh, to it. Uh, we'll do that after the break. Before we go to the break, that story, the, the story of uh, Bryce, and I was going to ask you about that. I'm glad you brought it up. That reminded me of an incident that I heard about when I was growing up out in Vernal. Um, the uh, bishop of our LDS ward, Bishop Winter, Joseph Winter, he ran a bookshop. He, he had a reputation as a saintly man. Um, and the, the story is he went home one day and found that his basement was filled with water. And it was reported that to what he said was "oh fiddlesticks," as reported by his wife. So similar okay. story, and that, you know that has an effect on a young man. Well, if that, mm-hmm. if that's what uh, Joseph Winder does. Well, then maybe, maybe I can do the same. Right, that's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, uh, we'll. Uh, I'll ask you about Philo Farnsworth when we come back. Let's take a break. The book is "A Splash of Kindness." John Starley Allen is uh, the author. He says, the little things we do can make a big difference. Ripples in a pond is the metaphor, or radio waves. I thought that was a very good and appropriate uh, metaphor for uh, the program today. Um, And we're asking you uh, if you have uh, something, an act of kindness that you experienced or or perhaps did, or something in your family that had an effect on you. Here's your chance to tell that. We'd love to hear it. 1-800-826-1495 is the toll-free number, or you can email us at upraxis at gmail.com. More following the break. 
programming on Utah Public Radio was made possible in part by our members and Headspin Events, presenting the fourth annual Cash Grand Fondo bike ride through Cache Valley and ending in downtown Logan. To benefit Logan Regional Hospital, July 11th, registration information available at cashgrandfondo.com. And by Summerfest Arts Fair, Father's Day weekend in downtown Logan, featuring regional and national musicians like Chance McKinney, The Strike, and Emily Merrill. Details at logansummerfest.com. Do your part during the California drought and take your car to the car wash? We're actually only using about 2 to 2.5 gallons per car, and that's less than like a dishwasher uses. I'm Molly Wood, the surprising upsurge in car washes during a major dry spell. Next time on Marketplace from APM. Tuesday night at 7 on Utah Public Radio. During next month's Uinta Basin StoryCorps project, Utah Public Radio will bring the recording booth to you. One of 10 stops during this year's national tour, the Vernal Library will be home to a fully equipped recording studio housed in a portable Airstream trailer. Share a story with a teacher, a favorite friend, or someone who has made a difference in your life. We begin taking reservations on June 18th. More information about UPR's Uinta Basin StoryCorps found online at upr.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. We're uh, honoring kindness. We're uh, shining a light on uh, Splash of Kindness. That's the title of John Starley Allen's book. It's out from uh, Cedar Fork Press. A Ripple Effect of Compassion, Courage, and Character is the subtitle. A lot of times we're uh, treating controversial issues and uh, trying to solve uh, seemingly intractable problems. I thought it uh, Good to change a pace to uh, to talk about this subject today, and you have an opportunity to uh, honor someone whose uh, act of kindness changed your life, maybe something from your uh, family's history. One eight hundred eight two six one four nine five. We'd love to hear from you. One eight hundred eight two six one four nine five, or upraxcess at gmail dot com. John Starley Allen says the little things you do make a big difference. Small acts of goodness have a ripple effect, and eventually change the world. Uh, what if you tell me about uh, Philo Farnsworth? It's, it's uh, in a chapter titled Rose in a Field, and that's, I think, what most of us are familiar with the, at least that part of the story. That's how Philo Farnsworth came up with the idea for television. Yeah, and, and what I really didn't know until I started researching this is it wasn't like there wasn't anything at all like television. There were a few attempts a television, and it was called mechanical television. And what it involved was these uh, spinning discs, kind of about the size of a large pizza, and, and you would it, send an image, it would go through a disc with little holes in it, send it through the uh, airwaves, and then it would be received, and the spinning disc, it, the light would come through it, and would, it would uh, compose an image on the screen. But as you can imagine, it was a low resolution. Uh, it wasn't very good. But this, this was, I, they thought, kind of, kind of like with a you know, motion picture uh, can, uh, projector, it was like, yeah, we have to have these moving parts. And Philo, all he knew, when he read it, he was fascinated with it. He thought, you know, this is not the way to go. You have to have a, a process where there aren't moving parts. But that's about all he knew. And 
one thing he hated to do was uh, plowing. Because he, he loved to read, he loved learning science. Even from a young age, he just, that was his calling in life. He just knew something, he was going to do something with science and inventing things. And he was plowing this field, and as he, he saw these lines, of the rows of the, in the field, and it, he just saw them expressed as lines on a, a, glass, a, a glass pane. And um, what he did was, in his mind, he thought, you know, it hit him like a bolt of lightning. He just thought, um, we can do this with electrons and uh, bending the path of the electron with a mag- with magnetic force. And he, what he did is he got off the the uh, plowing machine and went to see his father. And here, here to me is like a ripple effect. He talked to his father. His father knew nothing about science. He was just basically he lived his whole life doing agriculture. And he looked at his son, and he he always had a lot of faith in Philo. And he he, he didn't pretend to understand what the son said, but he said, "You know what? I think you've really got something." stick with it. And just that word of encouragement sustained him because he knew his father had faith in him. Again, it's that ripple effect. And then later, when when he was in high school, he approached a chemistry teacher and he said, I'd like to be part of your class. And the chemistry teacher thought, no, you haven't had the proper uh, uh, background for this. You need some other classes. And I, I just don't think it's a good idea. But he, he finally persuaded him to uh, to just monitor the class. And this teacher named Justin Tolman became a great mentor for Philo. And one day, uh, Philo Farnsworth explained his idea for television. And again, it was sort of like the father, only he had a, he had the scientific background. And he could follow the explanation about 90%. And the last 10% he didn't get. But he said, you know, I think you've really got something. And this... Um, this is something that really could change the world, and that really helped Philo Farnsworth. He said, okay, you know, my father has faith in me. This teacher has faith in me. And unfortunately, they, they had to move from Rigby, where, where this teacher was. They moved to Provo, but then he met his wife, his future wife, uh, Pam, Pam Gardner, and she kind of took, took the place of being a mentor. She just had this uh, unwavering faith Philo, like whatever he did, uh, she she backed him up 100%. And she she proved that because uh, later they, they moved a few times outside of Provo. They, they went to uh, Hollywood, San Francisco, they went to Philadelphia, they went to Fort Wayne, and just pursuing uh, the development of television, and she never lost faith in them. Hmm. And I just think those, those three people... You know, again, the ripple effect on Philo Farnsworth. Then, again, the tremendous effect that uh, his invention had on the world. And he he had to have some strength, some steel, uh, because this was high stakes, right? There was a intense competition for credit for for inventing television, and and for you know who's who's going to manufacture it as well. You know, that's it's almost. I kind of think of it kind of like a Greek tragedy. I mean, here here he. He legitimately comes up with the, the uh, really crucial parts of modern-day television, and yet there are other people that want to take credit. And um, he 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 went to battle with RCA over some some of his early patents, 
And that took a lot of his energy, just uh, trying to protect his patents. And RCA was claiming that, that they had the rights to these ideas. And that took just a lot of his energy. And what I think is interesting is uh, Bible Farnsworth, as far as I've researched, he's the only one that ever won a patent lawsuit against RCA. And they ended up paying him $1 million, which was just an admission like, yes, you're the one that came up with this. But most history books will say that RCA developed television. And the purpose of my book, I just want people to get the story of Philo Farnsworth. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, he really was the originator of it. And it's just it was so expensive. And he was like an independent inventor that it was just hard to get it off the ground. You talked to... Nelma Tolman Irvine, I've yes. seen the, the acknowledgement. Is this, this a daughter of uh, of this teacher? Of the teacher. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I asked her. I, 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 she met him at a, a, it was a meeting with I think KSL Television and the Utah Broadcast Society, and I think it was like in the early '60s, late '50s. And she she was there, and um, she met Philo Farnsworth, and she had heard about. It, her dad uh, was, uh, he would always like um, hold him up. He said, you know, again, the ripple effect, he would, he would like inspire his students. Like, if you really apply yourself, I happen to have the honor of being a teacher of Philo Farnsworth, and look what he accomplished. And he would use him as an example. So she had heard about Philo a lot in her lifetime. And uh, when she met him, uh, you know, she was impressed by, by, by him. And then he said, you know, your dad literally changed my life. And that made, that really made her appreciate her father so much more. And um, it was just a, kind of a nice, nice uh, reunion of these two people that uh, were connected with uh, Justin Tolman. Mm. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're justifiably proud in Utah and Idaho, and I guess uh, some other states can claim Philo Farnsworth. But uh, finally, I think a few years ago, uh, each state has uh, two statues in the Statuary Hall in the in the Capitol, yeah. and uh, alongside Brigham Young now stands the statue of Philo Farnsworth. Right. Well, you know, I was actually doing a radio interview uh, for the uh, interview. He was from Ohio. And as we talked about Philo Farnsworth, they said, you know, I was back in Washington, D.C., and I noticed that there was this statue of Philo Farnsworth. And I thought, yeah. And the uh, thing is, a lot of this that has happened in recent, in recent years, it was the result of his wife, Pam. And Pam, after Philo Farnsworth, he passed away at a early, relatively early age, and she was determined that uh, to preserve his legacy. And she, she worked like to get him on the postage stamp, and uh, he actually uh, posthumously got an Emmy Award for his work on television. And, you know, again, like the statue, she, she was behind a lot of this. And so even... When after he had passed away, she supported his him and wanted to preserve his legacy. Mm-hmm. There's a very poignant scene in the book. I hadn't known about this. Uh, their son died, I believe, and and yeah. uh, and the the company Philco said we we can't spare you to, right. to you know to to Philo, or they called him Phil. Yeah. So Pam had to take the company the, the son's body back to Provo alone. I mean, can you imagine that? It's like, you know. Uh, yeah, they, they thought, hey, Phil, we can't spare you, and they had a contract. And, you know, he, he really had some, 
very stringent principles that he lived by. He's like, I signed this contract, and he asked, he said, can't I go? And they said, no, nope, we can't spare you. And so he had to stay in Philadelphia, and I can imagine his wife making the trek on the train to Utah. And oh, and But again, Tom, another ripple effect of that, and see, there's like four stories where something bad happens and something good comes from it. And so they mourned the loss of their son. He, he, got, he got sick, started with a sore throat, and just progressed. And a little bit later, some doctors approached Phil, Phil Farnsworth, and asked him if he could they, uh, help them produce kind of like a, an elixir that would uh, help. help. This, this was before penicillin. And uh, this, for about a year, this, this elixir that um, he helped develop, and this was really a change of pace for him because he was involved in television, but he said, I will, you know, whatever time I have left, I will work with these doctors. We'll see what, what we can come up with. It did save a lot of lives. And then, but then I saw him came, of course, and that took over. But I guess that was interesting how, you know, from this horrible incident that happened in their life, this tragic incident, he was able to make something good from it. We're talking with John Starley Allen, if you just joined us. Uh, the book is A Splash of Kindness. It's out from Cedar Ford Press. Uh, John Starley Allen lives in uh, Holiday, has lived in Moab before in, in Nashville, other places, uh, has been a songwriter. And uh, he is author of a previous book, Christmas Gifts, Christmas Voices. This book is A Splash of Kindness, The Ripple Effect of Compassion, Courage, and Character. We'd love to hear your story. 1-800-826-1495. Toll free 1-800-826-1495. Or you can email us to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Uh, John Allen, I wonder if we could talk a bit about uh, Romanian orphans. You have a, a lengthy chapter in the book, um, chapter two, in fact. Um, I learned a bit about uh, the Romanian dictator Nicolas uh, Ceausescu from from the book. He, he, I knew going in, he was a piece of work, but uh, but here's here's kind of uh, negative ripple effects. I guess it can go the other way. Uh, Ceausescu was very inspired by uh, you know I guess Mao's and Stalin's cult of personality. He was very inspired, instituted that in Romania. But the thing I learned, maybe you could recount this first. Um, I knew, that, you know, the story of the Romanian orphans, and that there were a lot of Romanian orphans. I didn't know why. Yeah. yeah. And, and like, you know, he, he, he idolized Stalin and Mao, and then and also Hitler. And this ties in with the whole Jesse Owens story. He, he how Hitler wanted to create, like, a master race, the Aryan race, and he thought, you yeah, well, that's not a bad idea. Maybe we can do that in Romania. And so he just thought we're going to, like, you know, the desire, he said there's the desirables and the undesirables. That was how they categorized them. And so the ones that looked like they, you know, had high intelligence or might become good athletes, his thought was we're going to build this huge uh, building to house these kids in, and we'll give like the you know, best instruction and the training, and then the ones that aren't, you know, and the undesirable, so to say, uh, we'll we'll have them in orphanages, and we'll kind of like warehouse them, and they will do like the heavy lifting, the the physical labor for our country, and that was sort of the basic plan, and uh, so the, the, the tragedy is. It, 
in the, in the specific case of the of, of the story is if you were a infant born with cataracts, well, you know it would be it would be a simple matter to fix that, but it says like okay they're undesirable. You're going to the warehouse, and you won't have mental stimulation. You're just gonna <laughs> like stagnate, atrophy, and um, that was the tragedy. And, uh, and finally, you know, when when he was ousted, kind of came to an end. But they were this and the whole orphanage system was sort of ingrained into culture, where the idea was, yeah, you, you kind of can give your kids to the government, and some somehow they thought it would be better. And so that still kind of continued, even after. Uh, Francesco was gone. Then maybe uh, next, before we get into some of the the rest of the story, and uh, you tell the story of Raymond, who's a, a, an orphan, there, and that what happens to him. But you open the chapter, I thought, very interestingly, framing this uh, from the point of view of journalism. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Did you did you know somebody? Did you go to set out to become a journalist? Um, you, I did at the University of Utah, and a lot of it, I, I wanted this to be kind of symbolic. Like, it's just like any journalist, every and any journalist. And it's just the path you take that um, you go with a lot of idealism. And then the professor's like, well, you know, you're going to have to cover the stories that you're assigned. And it might be kind of hard to make a living. And you might not be able to, to, to do exactly what you want to do. But they says, but then there might be this story that you feel like you have to tell. And so I have the journalist, like, they come, he comes across uh, the problem in Romania. And it's like, this is a story that I really have to do. And, and it was uh, the uh, ABC program 2020. And so I just imagine, what would it be like you're in the, what they call the pitch meeting, where you pitch your idea, and the idea is taken, and little does this producer know the effect that, that this story will have. And again, the ripple effect. And uh, now that was just, but I sort of based it a lot on my experience of going to school in journalism. And, and of course, the and this resonates with anybody I'm sure in the media. Um, if you make your, if you try to make your living just telling stories like this, trying to right wrongs, et cetera, et cetera, you may not last very long as a journalist. Right. At least in some yeah, that's, circles. That's the reality of it. And I remember being in class. And uh, the professor uh, said, well, you know, after you graduate, you're, you're not going to go, like, to the two local papers or the TV statistics, because this is really a relatively big market. You're going to have to go to a small town and kind of get established and prove yourself. And maybe 10 years later, you want to return to Salt Lake, maybe you got a shot. And a lot of, a lot of us were like, really? We thought we were just going to go downtown and get a job is it doesn't work that way. Hmm. Uh, and so the, I guess one of the pebbles in the pond ripple effect is uh, a, a special ABC did a, did a special on Romanian orphans. Yeah. And that, that of course brought attention of many. And then, uh, you know, people, I think in many places, including in, in Utah, and you tell the story of uh, a lady by the name of Kathy Headley. Uh, we'll uh, continue this story following a break. And, and just the heartbreaking story, you, you focus on one orphan, Raymond. He's warehoused because he has club feet and he's blind. Yeah. And uh, since he's had no interaction, he doesn't speak, uh, just utters guttural sounds. Uh, we'll continue the story following the break.
Hi, it's Lynn Rosetto Casper. This week we're breaking the rules with a chef turned grill master who's reshuffling old school grilling techniques and a food scientist who's going to change your mind about what your home ec teacher taught you. That's the Splendid Table from APM. Tuesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Did you know that spending more on your child's sports experience may not help her feel motivated to stay with it? USU researchers say the best way to motivate your young athlete is to be supportive, but not critical. Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Sweetgrass Counseling Services with Dr. Deb Cupel, helping to empower individuals, families, and couples in everyday challenges, including health and sport-related issues. Details at sweetgrasscounseling.com and by the Sunshine Terrace Foundation. Sunshine Swing, a croquet tournament and lawn party, Saturday, June 13th, 1 to 4 p.m. Garden party, food and beverages, strolling musicians, and other entertainment. The Old Crooks and Homestead, 1491 East, 2300 North in North Logan. Details at sunshineterrace.com. John Starley Allen, he's a Utah resident, uh, says the little things you do make a big difference. Small acts of goodness have ripple effects and can eventually change the world. His book is A Splash of Kindness, The Ripple Effect of Compassion, Courage, and Character. We've been telling the story of Philo Farnsworth, who has roots in Utah and Idaho, who's uh, the inventor of television. The uh, story of Jesse Owens. We're now uh, telling the story of Romanian orphans and a connection to uh, Utah as well. Uh, so, uh, John Allen, what if you tell me about uh, Raymond? This is a, well, an orphan uh, in, in Romania. And, and uh, as you said, this is like uh, these, these kids were warehoused, and that was Ray, Raymond's, Raymond's lot in life. He was, you know, had the club feet, and so he was basically just kept in a crib. He was fed mush and bread soaked in weak tea, no, no mental stimulation, and it's just because you know, he was blind, and he had club feet. Again, that's not that's that big of a problem to overcome if you get the right medical attention. But again, the philosophy was like he's undesirable. We're going to uh, spend our money and attention on the desirables and just you know enhance their lives. And with him, he's just basically ignored. And then the tie-in with the program in 2020 is a woman named Kathy Headley saw that. And she, she'd been doing service her whole life, but she was looking for something, just that little extra, something more. And when she saw that program, she said, I'm, I'm, she made the resolution, I'm going to Romania. And when I was talking with her, she said, I didn't know exactly how to do it. I didn't know anything, how to organize it. And I just went by faith. And I just started to learn as I went. And she organized this uh, trip to with uh, some of her family members, they gathered a, a lot of um, materials. And what's interesting is uh, she had a friend who had a friend named Melody Bester, and they they said, you know, we were loading up this uh, container full of materials. And we're going to be leaving today, but we have a little bit little bit of room for some extra materials. 
Now, Melody Bester had actually two daughters with spina bifida, and one had used some walkers. And this is this inspiration that she just said, you know, I think we need to donate a walker, and the one we need to donate is the smallest walker. She didn't know why, but that was her inspiration. That was her, her thought. And so she asked her daughter, said, well, can I donate the smallest walker? Sure, go ahead. So they, they uh, loaded that up, took it to Salt Lake City, where it was loaded. And when the walker arrived in Romania, there was a physical therapist named Lynn Oburn who was working with Raymond. And um, he was very frustrated because uh, he had tried to, to show Raymond how to walk, and he kind of jerry-rigged a, a little tricycle, and he, said, and he had him Raymond hold on to the handlebars. And he, he actually sat on the tricycle and just moved his feet. The tricycle was going backwards, and Raymond was trying to hold on to the handlebars. It just didn't work. And it was very frustrating, but Raymond didn't like it, and uh, Lynn Oberman was frustrated, and he thought, boy, if we just had a walker. And then Kathy Henley shows up, and he asks her, he said, is there any chance, do you happen to have a walker in this container? And she said, we, maybe we do. I'm not sure. I kind of remember. Maybe there is one. And sure enough, they, they found the walker, and it was just a miracle that happened. It's this this walker really worked for uh, for Raymond, and he was able to learn how to walk. And, you know, during the break, I actually, I looked up a passage, if I could read it. Yes, yeah, describes that. Um, is from the start, Lynn and Kathy could tell that the walker felt right for Raymond. In marked contrast to his reaction to the tricycle, there were no squeals, no stiffening of his muscles, no resistance, just a patient, calm struggle master whatever it was Lynn was trying to teach him. Then just as Lynn was about to once again grip one of Raymond's legs, the thin leg lifted up without any assistance. A moment later, Raymond's foot came down with a thud. Raymond chuckled and did it again with his other foot. Couldn't quite figure out what it was he was supposed to move the other foot or move forward, but that was okay. That was work for another day. The main thing was that Raymond had demonstrated that he could learn to walk. For the next five minutes, anyone passing the room where all this was taking place could hear a series of thuds producing an irregular rhythm in addition to the sound of a child softly chuckling mingled with sniffles produced by two adults overcome with emotion. Hmm. I remember when I talked both with Lynn and Kathy, they just said they were overcome with emotion when they could see that the miracle of the walker arriving just at this moment, Lynn Oberton was there, and they were bonded with Raymond, and they could tell that he actually did have a future ahead of him. What, how's Raymond doing now? No one, this is what's interesting, no one really knows, because mm. in the Romanian orphaning system, they're, they're, it's, they keep things very confidential, and it, it's probably mainly for political reasons, where where they, they will transfer orphans, and no one really knows where they're at. And Because I, I kind of wondered, how's he doing? And he said, you know what, we, we don't know. He was transferred from that orphanage. But the thing is, right before Lynn Oburn left, 
Raymond was scheduled to have the cataract surgery. And he said, you know what, when, if he can walk and see, there'll be no stop in this young man because, you know, he, once, once, once uh, he was given this extra help, you could tell that he just wanted to keep moving forward and progressing. Hmm. So the, uh, I guess, uh, I don't know how what it is today, what the system is like today. Do they, do they get adopted out, or do they stay there until they age out? Or it's you know what it's it's improved, and what happened is after Chachesco was ousted, this the system was just ingrained in the system so much that it, it did last for a few years. It is better now, and um, there's still you know some of these remnants of the Chachesco regime they still kind of linger. So it's not perfect. It is better. Hmm. This illustrates a point, and you know we've we've heard this before that the you know these poor orphans were, you know, use the word warehouse. There's no other word, yeah. and and not interacted with really, and so you know, and studies have shown babies will die yeah. if that happens. Uh, it's just amazing, you know, Raymond's story, for example. Um, what what's the factor that that then helps them improve. It's, it's, is, it, is it that interaction? Yes, and what, what Kathy Headley said is, you know, they, they, she brought, like, she transformed the orphanage. Uh, she brought paint, playground equipment, colorful quilts, and, you know, there's just this transformation of sort of a gray drab building into more, more rainbow colors and of just more pleasant atmosphere. And the workers, they thought, they knew that Kathy was onto something, and that they asked her before she had to leave, they said, well, what advice can you give to us? And it was so basic, but she thought, I've got to, I will just, it's very basic, but I'm going to tell them what they need to hear. And she said, you've just got to love these kids. You have to love them as a mother would love them. You have to, uh, you know, the physical touch, and you have, you have to just uh, show them love, and that is what is going to help them. And they kind of looked at her like, you know, this was almost like a foreign concept to them because they were just used to just making sure that they had enough food and things like that, but not interacting with them. And and I think that was you know, because of because of Kathy's example and because of what she just told them before she left, that that had a great effect on that orphanage. We just have one minute left, and I wonder in the end, what's the effect of uh, writing the book and getting it out there? What's what's the effect been on you? What's what have you come to? I just think everybody has a ripple effect story. And, and when I talk with people, I say, well, let me tell you my story. It's like, yeah, everyone, either, either you've been able to help somebody or somebody has helped you. And you do, you know, and I, I think no matter what, you're going to make ripples. And the idea is, let's hope that they are positive ripples because, you know, there's no one in between. It's like, yeah, the ripple might be bad or good. And so I just think, just to be aware of what you're doing and how you're interacting with people. And um, there's like unseen uh, examples where, where like, you don't know you're being, look, you're, uh, being observed, and yet you do have a profound effect on somebody. Mm. Well, it's a very interesting book, um, A Splash of Kindness, The Ripple Effect of Compassion, Courage, and Character, written by Utah author John Starley Allen. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks so much, Tom. It's been great talking with you. And coming up tomorrow, we hope you'll join us uh, for a conversation with the Dean of American Historians, the wonderful writer David McCullough. 
is our guest tomorrow. He's twice received the Pulitzer Prize and received the uh, National Book Award. He's uh, received the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And you hear his voice on just about every other documentary on uh, PBS. David McCullough, my guest tomorrow. He's out with a new book on the Wright Brothers. That's tomorrow. Thanks for listening today. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and by the Sunshine Terrace Foundation. Sunshine Swing, a croquet tournament and lawn party, Saturday, June 13th, 1 to 4 p.m. Garden party, food and beverages, strolling musicians, and other entertainment. The Old Crooks and Homestead, 1491 East, 2300 North in North Logan. Details at sunshineterrace.com. Deseret News columnist Steve Eaton. What is that? What does it do? Can I eat it? Why are you doing that? Why did you close that door? Can you lay on your back like this? Look at how much pee-pee I saved up just for you. Oh, let's eat this thing. It smells awful. Why are you doing that? Let's go outside. I can pick this up and run away. I never, ever poop on your lawn or anywhere outside. Am I a good boy? What is this? Let's pull it off the table to see if it's food. Can a dog climb completely inside a refrigerator? I can. Don't you love me? I love everything. Let's jump on the bed. I did it first, so the bed is mine. I think I'll go lick that pillow. This is my life right now. I have said, okay, time to go potty so many times in the last 48 hours that I'm afraid I'll say it in my sleep or start to mumble it out loud in a work meeting without realizing it. We had a dog for nearly 17 years. Three days after my dog was married, our dog, Kalista, lay down and just couldn't get up again. She was gray, old, and very tired. She raised our two kids last April, and she decided that it was time to go. We were surprised at how much crying we could do over a single dog, one that never learned to give us back rubs or fetch the newspaper. There was an awful void. Something important was missing. As it turns out, there are very few people who will give you the kind of unconditional love that a dog will offer you. I've never had a boss jump up and down and run around in circles every time he or she saw me. Some have made me run around in circles, but that's not the same thing. I once saw an embroidered pillow in someone's house that said, I want to be the kind of person that my dog thinks I am. We miss that kind of respect and unconditional love, so we went out and did something we never thought we'd do. We got another dog. We got another Basenji, a breed of dog you don't see every day on the street. Rarely will you find them on a doggy calendar. We picked this breed because my wife is allergic to dogs, but not to Basenjis. They're very clean dogs, and I suspect they'd vacuum and clean our carpets and scrub the floors if they didn't think it would be easier to train us to do such chores. The clean instinct apparently doesn't apply to the puppy stage, especially if a puppy has decided it's much more private to go potty in the house than outside. Basenjis are known for being intelligent animals who prefer to train their owners. Of course, we aren't letting our new dog, Sundance, train us, but we have to adjust our behavior a little. For example, I've already learned that if I leave my socks on the ground, Sundance will grab them and fling them up in the air until my wife notices and yells at me. I put them away now. It's been a long time since we had a puppy, and our new Basenji thinks that just about everything that happens is reason to celebrate. There is no past, and there is no future with Sundance, just the glorious now, and clearly now is a moment made for playing and chewing. I've wondered how it would be if our presidential candidates had a little less bulldog and a little more puppy in them. Envision this. President Obama, Mitt Romney says you're wrecking the economy. 
and President Obama would just lower his head and go back in the White House and sulk. Or can you imagine this? A birther is backstage scolding a happy, relaxed Mitt Romney, insisting that he drop a sock from his mouth before he go on stage. Mitt, let it go. Drop it. It will make you look foolish, the birther would say. Or imagine President Obama involved in a tug-of-war with a rope toy and a particularly honorary member of Congress. Picture ops on the evening news would look much different that way. You can insert your own congressional lapdog joke here. Wouldn't it be cool and disorienting if our drones dropped tons of squeaky toys on terrorists instead of bombs? They could drop the bombs later if it was necessary. It would just be fun to see them rained upon with squeaky toys. For now, most of you will have to push ahead in this cold, cruel world with just your imagination and the hope of a better day. Not me. I've got a happy, joyous dog to train. But not right now. Right now, I think it's time to race down the hall and jump on the bed. I just need to pick up my socks first. This is Steve Eaton. Veggie or grilled shrimp fettuccine Alfredo. Grilled fresh salmon. A 10-ounce New York steak, all with a slice of cheesecake. Choose one of these entrees or order off the menu and support Utah Public Radio at the same time. Dine this Tuesday at a generous Logan restaurant between 5 and 9 p.m. No matter what you eat, 15% of all menu purchases go to Utah Public Radio. Come as you are. No reservations are required. For restaurant or other information, go to upr.org. You've heard of GNP, but how about GNC? There was an American reporter who called this Japan's GNC gross national cool. From Haruki Murakami to Hello Kitty, what is it about Japanese pop culture? Find out next time on To the Best of Our Knowledge from BRI, Public Radio International. Sunday morning from 9 to 11 on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. And thank you for listening to Access Utah today. The time now is 10 o'clock.